So we're going to talk about Jesus. You ready for that? I love talking about Jesus. It's one of my favorite things in the whole wide world to do. So this is a privilege. It's an honor for me. I am stoked to get started today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15. If you want to follow along in your digital Bible or in your old school hard copy, Luke chapter 15. We're going to be talking about the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son. This is one of Jesus' most famous parables. Not a true story, of course. It's a parable. It's a story he tells that highlights a spiritual truth. And it's so famous that we've adopted the, the, what we've titled this parable, prodigal son, into our own language. And, and we use that from time to time. But as we read this story, we have to pay attention to why Jesus is telling the story. We have to pay attention to why. Because in doing so, it unlocks the purpose behind this parable. So are you ready? Ready to do that? Okay, my wife is a crier. I have to first tell you that. My wife is a crier. And she doesn't think she is. She claims she's not. But she 100% absolutely is. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the big things in life where, you, where something tragic happens and you cry or you're watching The Notebook and you cry at the end. Everyone cries at that. I'm talking about she cries at the most random stuff in the whole wide world. So one time, Dana and I were hanging out on a Saturday morning, just spending the morning together, talking uh, kind of on and off our phones. I look over at my wife and, and she's crying, like silently crying, like full on, not just tears rolling down the cheeks, but actually crying. Um, and she's trying to hide it from me. And, and so I look at her and I think something tragic must have happened to cause my wife to cry. So I asked her, Dana, are you okay? Did something bad happen? She said, no, nothing bad happened. Well, are, are you sad about something? Did you see something that made you feel sad? And she said, no. And so I said, did I do or say something insensitive? I had to exhaust all outlandish possibilities to discover why it is that she was crying. And she said, no, you didn't do anything. So I said, then, then what? Why? Why are you crying? And, and so she showed me the picture that was on her phone that caused her to cry. Here it is. <laughs> That's a pug in pajamas, right? And I, was, and I said, really, Dana, a pug in pajamas? And through tears, she said, it's just so cute. Look at his face. Now, I don't remember how I responded to her. I can guarantee you it wasn't helpful. I can tell you that. But I, I was like, a pug in pajamas? Really? What is it about a pug in pajamas that caused my wife to have this deep emotional response to it? I, you know, it's probably because it's cute, or it may be because at the time she was eight and a half months pregnant. That could have been a factor, though, too. Um, but that's, that's how triggers work, don't they? So this didn't cause me to have a deep emotional response, but it caused her. That's how triggers work. What triggered her didn't trigger me. What triggers me doesn't trigger everyone else. That's how triggers work in our life. And there's big triggers. Of course, there's, there's things that we need to be culturally uh, sensitive toward that can trigger other people. But then there's other things that cause us to have just kind of a, a knee-jerk reaction, almost like an involuntary reaction that just like, causes something to, to you know, come up in us. So for example, if, if you have told your younger sibling a thousand times, do not go in my room and touch my stuff, you walk in, they're standing in there, that triggers you, doesn't it? Or in the morning when you put on a fresh pair of socks and then you walk through the kitchen and you step on a rogue wet spot, poof, right? How about this? When you go to Target, you find the perfect parking spot, and then you turn in, and there's a shopping cart in it, right? 
See, that's, you know, that's, triggers can cause this involuntary, deep, sometimes deep emotional response. That is what happened with Jesus before he told this story. Jesus was triggered to tell the story. The story is a response to something that Jesus encountered. And that's saying a lot because Jesus, as the incarnate son of God, he never let his emotions get away with him. Everything he did and said was on purpose for a reason, strategic for the listener to pay attention to. And the story he tells is layered upon layered with nuance. And again, we have to remember why Jesus tells the story. So let's get into it. Luke chapter 15, verse 1. I'm going to read uh, the first verse in the message translation. It says this, By this time, a lot of men and women of questionable reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. So in this scene, there's two groups of people. There's uh, men and women of questionable reputation and then religious leaders. So the men and women of questionable reputation, Scripture points out two different types of those people. The first is tax collectors, and they were cheats and everyone hated them. And then there were just sinners, which was a general term for people who just disregard God's law and standard. But the implication in the text, some translations call them notorious sinners. The implication is that they sin openly. They don't try to hide it. Everybody knows who they are and what they do on the weekend. That's this group. Then the other group was the religious people, the Pharisees, which were kind of the modern day or the the ancient day pastors, and scribes. Now, the scribes, they were kind of the lawyers of God's law. So these were the dudes that knew what was lawful and unlawful in God's law, right? So they would would draw up legal documents like marriage and divorce certificates, sale of property, inheritance, things like that. And that is key in understanding this story. So here's these two groups of people that Jesus is hanging around. And these two groups of people could not be more polar opposite each other. The religious dudes, they follow God's law to the letter. And then you have the notorious sinners over here who could not care less about God's law. And they're occupying the same space. So what do you imagine the vibe of that moment was like? What do you imagine that the exchanges between the two groups of people felt like? Imagine within the last year and a half or so when you've seen two groups of polar opposite people occupying the same territory. Whatever that tension is that is in your imagination, you have to hold on to it as we move forward with this story. Verse 2, Luke 15, 2. They, that's the religious guys, they growled. And they said, he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. So they're growling these words because in that culture, eating a meal with somebody was aligning yourself with them, was endorsing them, was accepting them, was fellowshipping with them. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was part of their lives. And the religious people are saying, he's taking them in as old friends. Often they say meals. He ate meals with them often, repeatedly. So their attitude about that about Jesus interacting with them is, who does this rabbi think that he is? What is he doing? So the second half of uh, 15 verse 2 says, their grumbling triggered the story. Now Jesus has to respond. He can't not respond. He's got to say something. So their attitude causes him to respond. And he gets to the story, but he gives them two kind of appetizer parables at first. So he says, in response to their grumbling, If you had a hundred sheep 
and one wandered off, wouldn't you leave the 99 and go find that one? And when you found that one, wouldn't you be pretty excited about it and tell everyone, hey, I found my lost sheep, and you'd throw yourself a little party and invite people to come to your party because you found your lost sheep? And in the same way, if there's a woman who had 10 very, very valuable coins and she lost one, wouldn't she turn her house upside down, move all the furniture just so that she could find that coin? And once she did find it, she'd be pretty psyched about it. And she'd invite all of her friends and family over and say, hey, I found my lost coin. Wouldn't that happen? And in both of these stories, Jesus says in the same way, when one sinner repents and comes back to the Lord, there's a celebration and a party in heaven. He begins by telling them those two stories, but he continues. Verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided the property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So what's going on here is this young son, in no uncertain terms, told his father, you are better to me dead than alive. That's what he said to his father. I'm tired of waiting for my inheritance. I'm tired of waiting for you to just hurry up and die already. I want what is mine. Give it to me now. And so the response of the father, the expected response, would be to completely excommunicate the son from the family. How dare you dishonor this household that way? You're out of here. And by the way, hearing these words from this young son in this story, that would have shocked both groups of listeners, both of them. Because what son would say this to their father? That would, have, that would have been very jarring for both the religious people and the sinners to hear that in this story. But that is indeed what happened. But the father doesn't kick the son out of the household, which would have been his right to do. He grants the request. He divides the inheritance between his two sons, and the younger sold off all the property, liquidated all the assets into cold, hard cash, and he journeyed as far from home as possible and spent every penny on wild living. Now, I imagine it's at, it's at that phrase, wild living, that the religious leaders fired a side eye at the sinners and probably thought to themselves, he's talking about you, you know. The wild living that the son is about to go and enjoy, that's a type of living that you are in the thick of right now. You are that kid in this story. Verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into the fields to, to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And again, this story is multifaceted. There's not one singular point in any of these parables. There's multiple points. But I kind of feel or I imagine that Jesus is, is possibly communicating to the notorious sinners, the uh, sinners of questionable reputation, He's warning them. He's saying, I, I know, I get it. I get, I get the life that you want to live. But listen, eventually the drought's going to come. Eventually you are going to run out of money. And if you continue down the path that you're on right now, you're going to one day wake up and find yourself so desperate that you're hanging out with pigs and so hungry that the food that the pigs are eating is going to look appetizing to you. He's warning them. He's telling them, don't make this mistake. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? They have food to spare. And here I am, I'm starving to death. I will set out, he he decides, I will set out and I will go back to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants. So he decided that's what he's gonna do. He's like, they haven't made there. So he got up and he went back to his father. Imagine that walk. Imagine walking home for this kid, going back to his father after all these years ready to confess, man, I have messed up royally. I've messed up royally. Your employees have it better than I had it. And I was your son. So imagine that walk back, him ready to confess everything that he had done. I remember the very first time I took a walk like that in my life where I had to confess to my own sin, my own something that I did wrong. Uh, I was at the grocery store. This is the first time I remember having to do this. I was at the grocery store with my mom, I was young, like maybe six or seven, like, like young, young. Um, and it was a rainy day, I remember this, because I was wearing like one of those Paddington Bear super thick plastic raincoats, you know what I'm talking about? The kind with deep pockets, which is important. So we were in the checkout aisle, and what's that eyeball height for a six-year-old in the checkout aisle? Candy, like tons and tons of candy. And so I looked up and I said to my mom, Mom, can I have some candy? And the answer I received from her, the answer that we received from somebody in our life, the answer that I've even used on my own kids is not this time, right? Maybe next time. What? Maybe next time? No, Mom, not next time. This time, sister. And so while she wasn't looking, I swiped some candy. And I made a terrible mistake. Not in the theft, Uh uh-uh. I made a mistake in what I decided to steal, okay? So I could have snatched a candy bar, Big League Chew, Blow Pop, M&M's, Skittles, anything. I could have stole anything. I stole Skittles. Or excuse me, not Skittles, Tic Tacs. I stole, yeah, Tic Tacs, okay? Have you ever walked around with a packet of Tic Tacs in your pocket? They're the loudest, most inconspicuous candy on planet Earth. And they're not even candy, by the way. They're breath mints. I'm six years old. Who am I trying to impress? So I swipe Tic Tacs, not Skittles. See, in, this, in, this, in my mind, that's what I should have stole, but I didn't. I stole. So I put the Tic Tacs in my Paddington Bear raincoat, like an idiot ginger kid stealing the loudest candy in the world. And then my mom gets done paying, and we take four steps away from the cashier, four steps. And each step was right? And so my mom stops. She's like, what's in your pocket? (laughs) Nothing. Oh, my gosh. I heard it. She heard it. The entire grocery store heard it. She looked, and there they were, the Tic Tacs. And she said, you need to walk back to that cashier, and you need to tell her that you stole these and you need to tell her that you're sorry. So I turned around, and that was the longest eight feet I have ever walked in my entire life. And I remember like walking slowly, thinking, what's gonna happen? Am I gonna get arrested? Are they gonna call the cops? Do they make handcuffs this small? You know, like I was so terrified what was waiting for me at that cashier, just like perhaps this young son was so terrified what was waiting for him at home. He's rehearsing it in his mind. He's saying, okay, here's what I'm gonna say. I'm gonna tell my father I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against him. And he's banking on the best case scenario, which is to become an employee at his father's estate. I want to be an employee, just let me be an employee. But he's wondering, he's fearful what's waiting for him once he gets home. Is that you? 
Is that you this morning? Are you fearful of what is waiting for you if you say, you know what, I know the life I've lived, but you know, what, what's waiting for me when I come back? And perhaps maybe some of you online are feeling that way today. Maybe the reason why you are online and it's, it's more comfortable for you to be there is because you are wondering what's going to happen here. And perhaps you've already made the decision, I want to come home, I want to return, I want to come back to my father. I want this relationship with God but you're afraid of what will, come, what will happen, what's waiting for you if you come to this house and you're kind of pacing on the driveway wondering what's gonna happen if you come inside. I want you to listen to the rest of the story. Verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. So he ran to his son. He threw his arms around his son and he kissed him. And the son said to the father, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be your son, he says. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. You know the fattened calf that we've been fattening up? We'll kill that thing. We're gonna have a feast and we're gonna celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he He's alive again. He was lost and he is found. This is when everyone's jaw dropped that was listening to this story. They're like, what? What happened? Because this father ran out to his son. No father, no man of authority during that time would run anywhere let alone to meet his own son. Don't get me wrong. It would have been an act of love and compassion if this father would have sent the servants and the employees to go meet the son. That would have been an act of unbelievable compassion and love. But that's not what the father does. The father sees the son and his trigger response is, there he is, I'm gonna go sprint out and get him. And how is it, by the way, that the father saw the son coming? Because he was looking for him. The father was looking for the son. He was on the front porch every day wondering if today was going to be the day, and that was the day. The father saw the son. Do you know that's true for you, too? God is looking for you. God is waiting for you. God is hoping to see you returning to him. And the moment, the very moment that you decide, enough is enough for me, okay? I'm done, with, I'm done with this way of living. I'm done with the drugs. I'm done with the drinking, the partying all the time, the hooking up all the time, the gambling, the deception, whatever, the cheating. I'm done with the far off land way of living. I am coming home. The moment that happens in your life and you turn around, that's what repent means, to turn around and head the other direction. The moment that happens to you in your life and you turn around and make the journey home, what do you see? You see your heavenly father in a full-on sprint towards you. Full-on sprint towards you. You might still be a long way off. You might still be a long, long way off. You may have just started that journey yesterday, five minutes ago, doesn't matter. But when God sees that shape of you pop up over the horizon, what he says is that, yo, DJ, I can see her. There she is. She's coming home. Man, she looks tired. She looks exhausted. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get the spa ready. We're going to get the stylist ready. We're going to get the manicurist ready. We're going to get everyone ready. You know, the fattened calf we've been fattening up. Kill that thing. We're going to have a party. Get the DJ pumped. No, like, do it now. She's coming. Okay, takes off his shoes, and he sprints toward her, and he meets her, and he throws his arms around, and he says, girl, I'm going to make you feel like my child again. I've been waiting waiting for you to come home. Today's the day we are going to celebrate. We believe in a God who sprints toward us the moment we decide to come home. Whew. That feels like a good spot to put an amen, right? Oh. So this is a part of, a story, of the story that tells a full restoration. The moment this kid said to his father, give me my share of the inheritance now, he was dead to the family. He was dead to the family. That's what sin does. 
It severs our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Look at Ephesians 2.1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. Notice where the Father interrupts the Son in the story. It's at verse 21. The Son said to him, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father says, let me stop you right there. I've heard enough. Let me stop you right there. What you said is true. You have sinned against heaven and you have sinned against me. And no, you are not worthy to be my son. But the father doesn't let the son say anything else other than those two sentences. Why? Because confession is necessary. Confession is necessary. You must confess. We must admit that we got it wrong, that we tried to make our own way, that we tried to claim what we felt was rightfully ours. We have to confess. We have to say, I've missed the mark. I've wandered off. I stole the Tic Tacs. We have to say that that part is necessary. But just because we are not worthy does not mean that we are worth less. Just because we are not worthy to be the child of God does not mean that we are worth less to God our Father. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our sin and our transgressions, it is by grace that we have been saved. Our rebellion, friends, is great. That's what prodigal means. It means over the top, really excessive, really great. Our, our sin is great, but his grace is greater than our sin. God is a prodigal too. He's over the top. He's excessive. He is too much with his mercy and his kindness. Our sin is great, but his grace is greater. No, we're not worthy, but he is rich in grace and mercy. Our transgression has made us dead, but he brings us back to life. Back to life. We are rescued. We are made alive again. This isn't the story of a disobedient son becoming an obedient son. Sin makes us dead. There's not levels of dead. You can't be a little disobedient and a little dead. You're either, you know, you're, you're not a little dead or a lot dead. You are dead. That's what sin does. Okay, And Jesus tells us that he can make us alive again through a relationship with him. That's what our faith is all about. Not bad, sinning people becoming good, unsinning people. It's about people who were dead because of sin being made alive again in Christ who gives us new life. That is something to celebrate. Let's kill the calf and get the party started for that. Yes, there you go. But not everyone's celebrating, though. There's more to this story. There is another son in this story. And it's at this point where I, I, when I imagine the story, Jesus is telling the notorious sinners, just come back, come back. This is waiting for you if you just come back to me. But after that part, he pivots. And now he's talking to the religious leaders. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Verse 25. When he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what's going on in there? And he said, your brother's come home. Your father's killed a fat and calf because he hasn't back safe and sound. The party's going on in there. Come on, we got to go in. But the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all of these years I've been slaving for you and, and I've never disobeyed one of your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, that when that kid comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? Are you kidding me? 
So the, the return of this prodigal son triggers his brother in the worst possible way. He's indignant that there's a celebration for him, and he refuses to go into the party. So let's talk about this older son for a moment before we get into the exchange between he and his father. Remember, Jesus is speaking to Pharisees and scribes, and they understand Hebrew law. There's so much, there's so many, again, so many layers to the story. I can't get into all of it, but at the top end of this story, something tragic happens that the scribes would have picked up on immediately. The moment the young son said to his father, give me my inheritance now, that's the moment the older brother should have stepped in to mediate the situation, but he didn't. He didn't. He let that moment pass him by, and that is a big deal in this culture. Listen to the words from Professor Brad Young. He's a uh, scholar in the Jewish traditions of the parables. He says this, the elder's son silence speaks louder than anything in the story. The crisis in the family is revealed when the young son says to his father, I want you dead, but it's also revealed in what the older brother doesn't say at all. The younger son wants his father dead, but the older son quietly receives his portion of the inheritance and does absolutely nothing to bring about reconciliation in the family, which was his role as the older brother in the family. So from the very beginning of the telling, the older brother is implicated. The religious leaders knew this. These guys aren't idiots, well, not all of them. They knew what Jesus was saying to them. They knew that Jesus was saying, you're grumbling and complaining that I am fellowshipping with these sinners and and accepting them as lifelong friends. That's what you're complaining about. Why aren't you doing what I'm doing, is what he's saying. And the story the older son seems to think that he held some sort of position of superiority in the family. Listen to the language that he says. The older son says to the father, look, which is super disrespectful. He doesn't even address his dad properly, like formally. And the scribes and the Pharisees love respect. So when they heard this, their skin probably crawled a little bit. He says, look. He doesn't even say dad. He doesn't say, look, pops. He just says, listen, you, okay? And then he says, all of these years, meaning all the years that your young son has been out gallivanting around doing Lord knows what, I have been here, what does he say? Slaving for you, slaving for you. That's how he views his relationship with his father. I am your slave. And I've been obedient. I've been doing what you've asked me to do. I've been slaving. And he says, uh, oh, listen to this though. I find it so interesting. He is, he, he's telling his father, I have been your slave. His young brother that just came home, his hope, his hope, his prayer, his plea to his dad is, would you just make me one of your slaves? Would you just do that? Can I just be in your household? Can I just be back home? Can I just be on the other side of the gates, be in your house? The hope of the young brother is the resentment of the older brother. The young brother saying, just make me a slave. And the old brother saying, all I am to you is a slave. And he says, I've never disobeyed your orders. And the resentment boils over in the next sentence. He says, You've never even given me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends, which is worth far, far, far less than the fattened calf that you just wasted on your young son. You should be grateful, Dad, that I didn't run away, that I didn't dishonor your name, that I didn't do what this son of yours, not this brother of mine. Don't associate me with him, this son of yours. I don't want anything to do with him. I've been the obedient one. He's been the disobedient one. Come on, pops. Are you kidding me? 
And this is where the story ends, in these next two sentences. Now, I envision in this moment that Jesus, still looking at the scribes and Pharisees, is looking, perhaps pleadingly, toward them. Remember, Jesus, he's not taking sides. Jesus isn't taking sides. He's not for one group and against the other. He's very much for the Pharisees and the scribes. Yeah, he, he uh, opposed their hypocrisy. He corrected them. He addressed them sternly. And he challenged them, but his heart is very much for them. Listen, verse 31. My son, the father said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. He begins by saying, my son, that is who you are to me. You are my son. You're my son. You may think that I'm the cold, distant you know, business guy, and all I want is your obedience. You may think that, but that, you've conjured that up. That's not who I am. You're my son, and I'm your father. He says, you are always with me, always with me. You've been here this whole time. You've been with me, but you're lost. You're lost too. You forgot that I'm your father, and I want a relationship with you. You've been in this house. I don't want your obedience. I want you. He says, all I have is yours. Don't miss the significance of this. The estate was divided between the two sons. The older, excuse me, the older brother received his inheritance the same moment the younger brother did. But the estate is not going to be divided again. The scribes knew that. The estate's not going to be divided. The younger brother squandered everything. The older brother stands to inherit all of the rest. It's not going to be divided again. Yes, the younger brother is fully restored to the family, fully. He's secure forever in the family, forever. He's got the family ring on. He's got the robe on. He's got the flip-flops on his feet. Nothing can take that away. But he squandered his inheritance. Rebellion is costly. But the father says, we had to celebrate. We had to. We just had to. Because, and he says to the brother, not this son of, your, or not this son of mine, this brother of yours. He's correcting the older brother's view of the younger brother. And he says, you got to come in and celebrate. You have to join us. And that's, that's how the story ends. That's it. We don't know what the, what the older brother decides to do. The father's pleading with him, come in. And we're, the story ends with that exchange between the father and the older son in the fields. And that's where the story ends. And the story started with the complaining and the growling of the religious leaders about the sinners. And Jesus hears this, and he's watching the looks that they're firing these people, and he's like, oh my gosh, they don't get it. They don't get it. They don't get that these people, these lost sinners, these, these ones who don't have a relationship with the Father, they don't know that these people are of insurmountable value to God. They're just complaining. They've, they're lost. They don't get it. And so Jesus has to see, or Jesus wants them to see that, that these people are of insurmountable value to the Lord. And so the same is true for us. We have to embrace the thing that broke Jesus' heart too for them. Church, if we see people of questionable reputation, and whoever that might be, that might be a friend, a neighbor, a family member, a coworker, whoever, when we see them and our first response is harsh words, criticism, side eyes, judgment, a carefully selected Bible verse loaded in the barrel of speaking the truth, then we are just as lost as the Pharisees. We cannot share that attitude if we are gonna be part of God's family. There's no room for that here. 
This is a story of two lost sons. Both of them were lost to their father in different ways. The younger was lost in his rebellion, but the older was lost in his obedience. Neither understood who their father was. Each wanted only what the father had to give, which was resources and food and protection and all that stuff. Neither of them knew how much their father loved them, and that's why they were lost. And that's our story, too. We are neither the younger or the older brother in the story. The truth is, is that from time to time, we are both of them. We can feel God is holding out on us, and so we make our own way in our rebellion. And sometimes we leverage our obedience and our effort. Um, you know, we leverage that in order to receive from God the things that we think that we are entitled to. And when payday doesn't happen, it can conjure up resentment in our heart toward God because we feel he's holding out and he's, he's withholding from us and he says, not this time, maybe next time. But the father goes after both sons. He ran toward the young son coming home and he left the party to go find the old son in the field because that's who God the father is. That's why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's Luke 19.10. So if we are going to be part of this spiritual family that God is building in his church, we need to be bringers in. We need to be bringers in of everyone, no matter what. That's a call of this family to, re to represent our Heavenly Father well, to do what the older brother should have done but didn't, and reconcile the family together to go after our kid brother. Look at 2 Corinthians verse 5, starting in 18. All this is from God. That's talking about our new identity. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, not counting people's sins against them, not grumbling, not complaining, not firing side eyes, not whispering about that, not counting their sins against them, but he committed to us, me, you, the church, the ministry of reconciliation. God has committed to us this ministry of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God himself were making his appeal through us. So we implore you, we beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He is making his appeal through us. How is that going to be if we are standing on the front porch tapping our foot saying, well, 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 look who's come crawling back home. We need to be the first to say, you're here. We've been waiting for you. Welcome back. We've got a party going on in there for you. Let's get you the robe. Let's get you the ring. Let's get you the flip-flops. Come on, come on. I know it's been a long journey for you. I know you're exhausted. We're going to clean you up. No stress. Come on in. We are waiting for you. You're safe here. You belong here. You can be part of this family, friends. You can be part of this family. The moment that that you place your faith in Jesus and you say, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Jesus, I'm sorry. Can I just come home? And Jesus is like, yes, I've been looking for you. I've been looking for you this whole time. I've seen you. And the moment I saw your little shape pop up from the horizon, I got the party started because I knew you were on your way home. You may have journeyed far, far, far from God, like really far, repeatedly. But God has journeyed even farther to seek and to save you. 
Jesus said, I stepped out of glory for you. I stepped off my throne for you. I walked past the angels and the seraphim praising me nonstop every day. I walked past them. I walked past the the lightning and thunder that surrounds my throne over the sea of crystal that surrounds my throne. I sprinted past the pearly gates to find you. I became a baby and I was born and I lived with you. I experienced life's joys and pains and sorrows and laughters with you. And I did that to show you how God wants you to live. And then I went to the cross and I died for you because I want you to see that's how much God loves you. And guess what, friends? I defeated death, Jesus declares, because I want you to know that I have the power and the authority to make dead things alive. Put your faith in me. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That is why we gather as this family every Sunday to remind each other we are worth celebrating. When we come home, we are worth celebrating. It's the Father's house and everyone is welcome here. Everyone, no matter what. So come home from the distant country. Come in from the field. There's freedom in this house. There's forgiveness in this house. There is grace and mercy in this house. There's a party in this house, and it is waiting for you. So come home. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray that this truth paces with us in the moments after we leave this place today, God. I pray that the moment we decide that we are going to come home, Lord, we turn around and we see you standing over us saying, Welcome home, kid. I've been waiting for you. Lord, I thank you this so much that from the moment we cry out in our most desperate hour, you are already in that moment with us, waiting to forgive us, waiting to cleanse us from all unrighteousness by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and waiting to give us new life in his name again. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.